What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. Of course, you know, we drop these in between our full episodes, and we are currently sort of in the in-between full episodes for a couple weeks because the school year just wrapped up, and it's going to be a while till we get our super dope guests back on the show. Well, actually, it might not be a while, but... But we just wrapped up the school year and you've had a few passing periods in a row. And Jeff, I just want to say that on our most recent passing period, by the way, my name is uh, Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And if you're brand new to all of the above, thank you for uh, joining us here. Uh, but Jeff, we did say on the last passing period, I didn't really want to gloat or brag about being finished with the school year because I knew a lot of teachers were still having, you know, still had more time left in the school year and I didn't want them to feel bad or anything, but I believe a whole nother swath of teachers just had their last days of school uh, in the last day or two, uh, particularly in the Los Angeles area. So we have now, I think, enough teachers who are starting their summer break that we could go ahead and just take it all in and just celebrate, maybe gloat a little bit. Sorry, East Coast folks who still have a little bit of time to go. But we made it, and we are here. It is summer break. It's like hot as hell out here where I live. It's like triple digits now, and summer summer has arrived, Jeff. Summer has arrived, and I think perhaps you're not as excited about it as myself and other classroom teachers are, but um, we are excited. We are here. Yeah. How are you doing, Jeff? You know, I'm doing well. It's a, it's a beautiful moment, the end of the school year. And uh, in the sense that, like, there is, it's it's the coming together of culminations and graduations, and you know, kids moving on to middle school and moving on to high school and becoming, you know, real teenagers and stuff. And like, uh, there's so much hope and optimism and joy and sense of uh, of wonder and possibility that comes uh, with the end of the school year. And then also the, you know, I think the uh, important restorative aspect of like a period of rest coming and a period of vacation coming. Uh, and we don't do that enough in our uh, Western capitalist society. So uh, congratulations to anyone who is uh, going to receive some break uh, this summer and be able to take some vacation. I hope it is good for you and your soul and your family and your relationship and your health and, you know, weight loss and all the things that many of us need to do in this country to uh, be healthier than, than we are, you know, forced to be by the rat race that we, uh, that we run um, in this world. So um, that was a very long-winded response to a very simple question that you asked me, Manuel, but that's, hey. that's what I got for you today. I love it. I love it. I, I appreciate all that. And I do want to shout out all those, you know, it's the honest fact is that for a lot of folks, this was their last day of school uh, recently. And it will, for a lot of folks, be the last day ever teaching because of either retirement or moving on to other things or whatever. So I definitely want to send an extra warm hug and super shout out to those of you who have uh, finished what will be maybe your last school year in the classroom uh, for those of you who are classroom teachers. And I also want to give a shout out to those of you who also celebrated your own 
graduation or commencement. I know we have several listeners here that are in grad school and we have some new doctors out there. Dr. Riley comes to mind. Shout out to everybody who recently got hooded or recently finished whatever program they're just in or are about to finish and wrap up whatever program they're in. So everybody celebrating those milestones. Shout out to all of you. And we are here on another passing period, taking time to talk about some recent news and headlines in the world of education, particularly stories that we haven't already addressed in our full episode. And Jeff, uh, today's story deals with those at the very, very beginnings of this journey in education, the very beginnings of this education pipeline. And it's very interesting, interesting data coming out of, of some of these preschool programs out there as more and more areas look to expand preschool programs and make preschool or pre-K uh, universal across all communities. So Jeff, let's take some time to talk about this because even though we are celebrating the end of a school year and uh, for many, the end of, of years of, of learning or teaching, there are those who are just starting out, just starting out, the little ones just beginning to uh, learn and grow in, in educational settings. So let's uh, let's go ahead and, and talk about it, man, what we got. Yeah, well, so, uh Fascinating, fascinating topic for today, Manuel, and one that is both surprising and obvious, I would say, uh, in, <laughs> in the way that things tend to be both surprising and obvious here in these United States of America. Um, and got to give another shout out uh, because this story came to our attention uh, from the Heckinger Report. So shout out to the Heckinger Report. Uh, you know, always a fascinating source of news and information about education. And Jill Barche, who uh, we have cited numerous times um, on, uh, on this show. Um, but she uh, just recently released a piece uh, this week, June 6th. Uh, in her proof points column titled in two places researchers find problems with expansion of free pre-k and uh, not to kind of bury the lead behind the lead but essentially uh, what she's exploring in this article is a body of research that has been reported on previously coming out of the state of tennessee which was one of the um, let's say earlier adopters among some states of a um a near, at least universal pre-K program um, uh, back in 2005. So talking about Tennessee and what happened there, and then also looking at a more recent study that's uh, just recently come out of New York City, which also, and I think this now would be like uh, maybe seven, eight years ago. It was, it was actually, man, well, right after I left New York City and moved to LA. So around 2000, it might've been fall of 2014 that the uh, Universal Pre-K program there, um, yes, it was, 2014, uh, debuted and uh, doing some analysis comparison between the like trajectory and results of what has happened since these two places um, have rolled out these programs. And this is, of course, in the context of nationally, it's kind of increasingly popular to say and think that we should expand um, Pre-K for all. Um, you know, universally everywhere if we can. Of course, the conventional wisdom, uh, drawing on a study that dates back as early as uh, 1968, um, says, you know, kids who attend pre-K uh, are less likely to wind up in the criminal justice system, more likely to be employed, more likely to have a host of better life outcomes. Um, and so that feels intuitively true. And seems like, of course, you know, this is how it should be. So we, so we should expand this. 
this article uh, and these these sets of investigations are revealing that the the actual results of the programs are perhaps more nuanced than uh, it might seem on the surface, and and this is the surprising part, right? That like, hey, you just you you run universal pre-K and it doesn't immediately turn into universally good outcomes for all kids, even though. Theoretically, everyone's receiving a new service they weren't receiving before, so like, how could it not help, right? Um, the obvious part of this story is that we live in these here United States of America where we don't do anything fairly and the way we should. <laughs> we do stuff uh, equally sometimes and almost never equitably. And so what we are seeing is uh, disparities in outcomes um, sometimes stretching to the point that certain demographics of students are actually doing worse or are more closely associated with slightly negative outcomes for having attended uh, free pre-K than they, you know, than they would from their uh, randomly selected peers who didn't get, <laughs> get pre-K, right? Now, that's deeply concerning. Um, we also see patterns of... Uh, of poor quality of program. So even though you might be spending the same amount on each program, like say the New York City program does, uh, roughly $10,000 a year per student, the quality of actual teaching that's taking place or instruction or supervision, um, you know, whichever types of activities are involved, um, the quality of what the adults are doing is uneven. And so, you know, the article talks about, for example, the difference between an, an instructor who is just sort of standing and hovering over the kids and not really interacting with them, but just supervising versus an instructor who's on the ground with the kids engaging in, you know, um, verbalization, play, you know, physical interaction. Um, and of course, these things, you know, anyone who's been around and or raised young children knows that those things make a huge difference uh, with kids, uh, especially at the younger ages. So, um, so we're seeing, well, in many ways, what I would argue is like a replication of our larger problem that we tend to have in almost every aspect of our social life in this country, um, which is we don't spend and resource equitably. And then we act surprised when, when stuff ain't all sweet uh, in terms of the outcomes. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is perhaps uh, obvious that it would turn out this way. But uh, that's just my initial take here. Dr. Rustin, um, I'm curious to get your thoughts, man. Universal pre-K sounds great. Is it as good as it, as it should be? Is there more to the story here? What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I thought this was fascinating. Maybe it's not surprising that there are disparities, but that some of the programs are so whack that like there's even a question that maybe the kids would be better off just not in a program at all. Like that to me was was fascinating and not fascinating in a good way. So like just to quote the article itself, it, the, the second paragraph of the article, uh, she wrote, quote, the programs can be so low quality that some kids are worse off they might have done better without preschool. Now that right there is just like shocking to me because I mean, damn, for it to be, for that to even be a question, even though uh, the researchers in this case admit that there's still a lot of data that they need to to unpack and, they, the, and that they need to collect. But for that even to be a question that like, oh, maybe actually this, maybe some kids would have been better off without this in the first place. 
that that it reminds me of early in the pandemic when when there was that talk and debate about just how bad distance learning is impacting students and several folks, uh, myself included, I think you as well, and uh, several guests on the show pointed out that like for a lot of kids, for a lot of families, the kid not being in the school building actually might be better in some cases because instead of having to deal with all of the, uh, just all of the challenges that a kid faces in a, in a building that doesn't express love and support for that kid, instead of the kid having to deal with discipline and being barked at for being late and being, uh, you know, just this, that, whatever, like they could just be at home and learn through the computer and have supportive folks around them who aren't uh, getting on them or aren't making them feel less valued or aren't bullying them and all those things. So I remember we were having those discussions during the height of the pandemic. And this kind of took me back to that, like, dang, yeah, maybe just the question that maybe some kids will be better off just not going into that uh, low quality situation. That's, uh, yeah, that was really something that, of course, being a high school teacher, I don't know much about early childhood education in the sense of like what good quality uh, preschool programs look like and what they don't. So I really like that that was um, that was explained in this in this article. You mentioned one one point about like the um, having a teacher who's actually literally down on the ground with the kids, uh, playing with them and, and interacting with them and engaging with them versus having folks who kind of just like hover above and walk around in a more supervisory role. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. They pointed out differences in like the the actual furniture and the play space, and you know some of that stuff is is beyond control in terms of the the amount of, of space there but you know it does uh, make a difference they pointed out things in terms of like the types of activities having kids um, engage with music and recite lyrics and things like that and play with math concepts and and, and objects and things like that like that's what a, a higher quality program should have and a lot of these programs that have been observed lack a lot of that so that's quite troubling it's not surprising at all that it falls along race and income lines that's not surprising at all it's not surprising that the programs in the communities that are most black have happen to be the programs that are least well rated. So that's not a shock and that's not a surprise. I think that goes along with the mountains and mountains and mountains of evidence that we have to show that these problems in our education system are truly systemic. Like they are truly above and beyond the just individual. And like if anybody out there still doubting that it's just I, I don't I, I don't think you're living uh, in any semblance of, of reality here so yeah it's real concerning there and I hope that as more data gets collected there's questions about whether or not this is about teacher training and PD uh, whether or not it's the most experienced educators tend to go to the more affluent areas there's a point in there about this idea that once preschool became universal, then that means there's more job opportunities for, for early childhood educators. And maybe those folks gravitate towards places with better compensation, which might also be places that serve wealthier areas. And, and that would make sense to me. It's unfortunate, but it would make sense to me. And it kind of reminds me going all the way back to Brown v. Board, like this celebrating on one end, like, yeah, it's, uh, segregation's gone or, or Schools are going to be integrated, but at the same time, the side of that, which is, okay, well, in that case, the black educators, they weren't offered uh, space and opportunity to teach in these predominantly and historically white schools, of course. So, so many black educators lost their jobs during that. And in this case, like, hey, universal pre-K for everybody, universal, this is this is great. But then, oh, wait, hold up. All the quality educators are, are going to areas with maybe more compensation or maybe better conditions or something like that. And now, actually, we got some programs that are kind of whack, actually. So the, I don't know if unintended consequence is the right phrase here, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely 
troubling. It's not super surprising, but it is fascinating that there's even a question that some of these kids maybe would be better off just not even being in pre-K at all, given the quality of some of these classrooms. So, yeah, mm. that's where I'm at. Yeah, I, so uh, I do want to correct the record from what I said earlier on one thing, that um, New York City was initially spending 10000 per child, but that number has gone up over the years, and now they're spending uh, somewhere between eighteen to 20000 per student per year. Um, so the... The larger point, I guess, with that to me is uh, not that that necessarily that's not enough, that, that we should be able to expect quality programming for that amount of money per student, but there's a couple layers to this, right? Like one, we're spending equally, or they are spending equally across the system, not equitably across the system. Right. And even we know with our very youngest uh, children, the effects of poverty, the effects of community violence, intergenerational um, you know, trauma and these sorts of things are concentrated in the poorest, blackest and brownest parts of the city. And so we shouldn't be spending equally. We should be spending equitably and we should be spending two to three times uh, what we uh, or perhaps more uh, in Areas where we have chosen as a society to concentrate trauma, violence, and oppression than what we spend in areas where we don't. And, no, you know, that's not popular with the wealthy and, and powerful, um, but, you know, I don't really care what they <laughs> think about this issue all that much. Or, they, you know, they can afford therapists to deal with those feelings and explore <laughs> um, how, how they're perfectly fine with an oppressive status quo. Um, that helps them and, uh, you know, harms others. So, you know, I think there's that issue that's at play here, Manuel. And also, you know, I, so I think you framed a minute ago, this idea that like, if, um, if you're going to preschool and really bad things are happening, you have a horrible teacher that it would be better to stay at home. And I think that is probably true. And I would argue that it, it might even be less stark of a, of a polarization there that raises interesting questions. Like, let's say you have a perfectly fine instructor that's just not, like, super effective, but, you know, isn't, like, yelling and screaming at the kids or hitting the kids or, you know, not, nothing problematic in that way, just not really doing a great job of, like, actually instructing the kids, right, or supporting their, like, learning, growth, and development, just kind of supervising and making sure everyone goes home with ten fingers and ten toes, right? Um, when you compare that with care that you might receive from a parent, from a grandparent, from, you know, a, a family-based care setting where kids are much more likely to get either one-on-one -on -one or very small group types of instruction or support or hugs, love, right? Things that are hard for a school type of institution to replicate. Uh, I think that's a fascinating question about like, what, you know, what is actually best for children at that age? Um, and what is some of the motivation behind our desire to have universal pre-K. Now, as a person who doesn't have children, I'm going to admit my particular privilege in this situation because I'm not paying for childcare, uh, you know, thousands of dollars a month or whatever it costs people nowadays, um, way too much that, you know, I have plenty of friends who like honestly have had to sit down and say like, if both of us work, we're gonna pay one of our salaries for childcare. So 
it's just better if one of us doesn't work, right? And then, of course, there's huge like gender uh, imbalance in, in making those kinds of decisions. So this is complicated. I get it. I'm speaking from, you know, from my seat and I, I want to own that in this in this moment. And I will say, given the needs of our very youngest children, I think it is hard, which which I would argue, and I, I you know, I'm not a, uh, able to cite research on this, just knowledge, uh, <laughs> I guess. But like their needs, which are like individualized attention or very small group attention, physical contact um, is extremely important, right? Hugs, p- physical play, you know, cuddling, rolling around and wrestling, and these kinds of things that are both difficult from a numbers perspective for any type of school or daycare institution to replicate and present potential problematic situations like too much physical contact with kids. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's tough for an institution to replicate that and get the same outcomes. Maybe in the same way that it's tough for families to have someone stay home in this day and age and be that caregiver when we don't pay people as a society, as some other countries around the world do, pay people to be a home caregiver for their kids up to a certain age when they are more able to go into a more socialized school setting and um, and derive greater benefits because they are developmentally at a place where they're more ready for that, right? So to me, that's I wonder what's at play in this equation around that, right? Like how much of some of the harm could be some of these students um, have a set of needs that this institution can't really fill, and when you layer on top of that poverty, trauma, oppression, etc., and you layer on top of that poor quality instruction, then you see <laughs> perhaps some of these outcomes here, right? Which is like, well, maybe it would have been better for you to not go at all and just stay home, right? Or go to grandma's house or, you know, stay with your uncle or whatever it is that other family, that families are doing in the absence of pre-K to make it work, right? So, um, it, yeah, that, those are some of the ideas that are swirling around for me. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think there's still a lot to be learned about what actually is happening and how this could be addressed. You know, you mentioned, for for example, the fact that the same amount of money is being spent per kid, regardless of the kid, regardless of the family. Um, and, you know, to me, obviously that's not equitable and obviously uh, things could be done there. I just, I also um, worry because part of me is thinking like, well, if this is happening at that level, let's not just pretend that like, you get to first grade, second grade, third grade, that there aren't still situations where maybe the kid would have been better off because of the conditions in that particular classroom, mm. but which then is dangerous because for one, I think that's that's true. I think, I, I mean, there's plenty of young folks who the harm that was done in a school building because of either lack of uh, quality teaching or other things like you know punishment and, and exclusionary practices and all that, who there's, you know, plenty of folks who would have been better off just, you know, learning at home and this and that. But I, that's dangerous because then it, it leads to the realm of like homeschooling and the narratives of public schools being so bad that like, you know, you got to teach your own kid because these schools, this, that, whatever, whatever. And that's, you know, that's a slippery slope towards a direction that is away from what we're trying here. And what we're, what we're trying here is to build a system where every single young person, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they live, could access high quality education in a loving humanizing classroom, be it preschool or 
12th grade, whatever. And to get there, we have to figure out, well, what's going wrong? And in this case, in the preschool case, there's a lot of questions about um, what is going wrong. So is, is it that the higher quality teachers are gravitating towards uh, certain communities? Is it that there's just not enough training? Is it that there's, you know, who knows what? And we've talked in the past about the lack of compensation for early childhood educators. And maybe that's an area of concern. Maybe the folks, as this expands, maybe there's just not enough quality candidates because the compensation isn't there. And that's something that needs to be built up. This this certainly seems like a problem that could be addressed and it will certainly take time. It'll certainly take more data, more research, but it's important, I think, that we continue to make sure that all kids have access to early childhood ed- early childhood education and that we continue to figure out how we could build up the system to be higher quality and more equitable for sure for for folks. So yeah, it's very fascinating. I I don't think I've seen very many articles where the question has come up like, oh, it's so bad that kids might have been better off without this in the first place. So that really stood out to me. (laughs) I was like, yo, what is going on? So yeah, uh, I don't really have many thoughts beyond that. I mean, I'm certainly hoping that as I know California as a state has has um, started the the process of making universal pre-K like a reality. And I hope there's um, really good folks behind uh, behind that implementation so that we could hopefully avoid some of these uh, early ch- challenges in um, that New York City has seen and in Tennessee as well. So, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, I you know it, I think you you bring up some excellent points there, man. And I I would uh, maybe just close with um, I think we we have this uh, this idea, Manuel, that um, well, I guess what the way I would say it is, there's a lot of our profession as educators that feels. Um, that feels like we, in our motivation for why we're coming to the profession, have one impetus for that. We have one reason, right, which is often rooted in, like, wanting to help kids empower, you know, and, like, be empowered to pursue their dreams and help kids grow and flourish and develop and, you know, see the the discovery and the wonder and the joy of learning and, you know, these these sorts of things, right? Um and then we have like the societal impetus for why we have school, right? Which in theory should be at least mostly aligned <laughs> with, with our like benevolent educator uh, motivation, right? right? Um, but I think honestly, when you look at the behavior of the system and the way we have chosen to fund things and the rules and structures that we have, I think there's a stronger case to be made that a significant, you know, certainly historically a significant motivating factor has been simply hold the kids to keep them supervised and out of the workforce and sort the kids into the the haves and the have-nots, right? Or the, you know, the kids were going to go to college and the kids were going to go to the factory and, you know, the kids were going to go to jail, right? And, uh... And so, and I think more recently, we have at least introduced rhetoric into the system that's like asked us to question that, right? And like, well, we should, you know, we now overtly say, which is we didn't say 30, 40, 50 years ago, every student should go to college, right? We have federal legislation called the Every Student Succeeds Act, right? Like, like we have shifted our narrative about what it is we're trying to do. 
And yet, I think if you scratch the surface of that, what do we mean by Every Student Succeeds Act? We're saying, oh, every student's going to like achieve at high levels in liberal arts education and go on to four-year college and graduate and become, you know, a, a white-collar professional. That's a logistically impossible outcome, right? We don't have white-collar professional occupations for everyone, nor do we even pretend that we do because there are enough seats in four-year colleges for everyone, right? Um, we have more kids going to college now or, you know, close to it than ever before, and we don't have enough seats, right, across the country, even, even now, let alone trying to push for all. So I think when you, when you scratch a little further underneath that, what we get to is a motivation that's something more like, um, how can we outsource the, the work of dealing with the harmful, oppressive byproducts of, our, of the social and economic order we have chosen to live by? And the way we will do that is say, we're going to have equal opportunity, like engines for opportunity that, that primarily take the form of school. Um, there's maybe a few things that go with school, like Medicaid is maybe something like that. And, you know, maybe there's a few other programs that like are, are, are attempts to say we're, we're not going to stop poverty. We're just going to give you universal pre-K so you can overcome your poverty. We're not going to stop racism and violent policing and mass incarceration and, and the war on drugs. We're just going to say... Here's an after-school program. Here's you know more money for better curriculum in schools, or you know these kinds of things, right? And it's it's that I, to me some of the results that we're seeing from this study uh, and the results from both Tennessee and New York City is perhaps revealing of the fact that like wh what we're still trying to do is prove an argument that we will never be able to prove, which is poverty doesn't matter and. Racism doesn't matter. All you need is like good schooling and then you can overcome these things. Uh, and, you know, of course, there are individual cases where that's going to be true. But structurally, we're, we're attempting to treat the wrong thing here with school. Uh, and which doesn't mean that doing that thing doesn't mean having universal pre-K is bad. right? It just means like if... I don't know exactly what the right metaphor is here, Manuel, but like, let's say you have pneumonia and I'm giving you like Tylenol to bring down your fever. Like, that's a good thing. It probably feels better to not have a fever anymore, but you still need something. You need like antibiotics to clear your lungs, <laughs> right? If all I'm doing is bringing down your fever with the Tylenol, we're still going to see like, oh, you're having trouble breathing and you're, you feel tired and, you know, all these other symptoms, right? Um, and I feel like somewhere in there is kind of an analogy about universal pre-K. I'm like, we should have universal pre-K for anyone who wants it. Sounds good. It should be high quality, of course. And we should fix poverty and racism, <laughs> you know. And this is not, this might be a piece of that, but it's not that actual direct work. Well, Jeff, that's a lot of communism and Marxism there. And I should point out to folks, since this is not a video episode, like most of our, well, all of our full episodes are video shows, so you can see us. Uh, so you can't see this one, but Jeff is wearing a shirt that uh, ostensibly is a, a middle school, but it has the uh, cultural Marxist fist in the air um, logo on it. So uh, apologies to all of you out there, all of you proud American capitalists for um, my my communist comrade here. Um 
first of all, I think the term you were looking for was cultural Marxist. Yes. Um, yes. Which I, which is what I am, obviously. And uh, second of all, this shirt, which of course people can't see, but it has a, a fist with a monarch butterfly on it, which is just a beautiful uh, contrasting set of images. And this fist with the monarch butterfly comes from none other than the new Edwin Markham Middle School in Watts, California, um, which uh, not coincidentally is also uh, the school that is the home of a, a, a multiple time former all the above guest, our yeah. senior middle school correspondent, uh, Miss Genevieve DeBose. So um, we got to get her back on the show, man. It's been a minute. It has been a minute. That's a good call. Uh, so Genevieve, yeah. if you're listening, check your email or something. We'll, we'll be in touch. But I know she's she's going to be traveling here, uh, so it might have to be like a, a late summer. Genevieve uh, Je- Je- hey. is going to enjoy that summer. Hey, man. We <laughs> summer all break. Not to put it. your business out in the street, G, but, uh, <laughs> but have fun. Yeah. Um, we all need so, it. We all need uh, it. We do. Yeah, well-deserved. Absolutely. So uh, shout-out to Markham. Shout-out to Watts. And um, yes. Yeah, all that. And also, I want to point out one of our... Uh, Recent, well, recent, I don't know, man. Time is all blurred. Not that recent, but uh, former AOTA show guest uh, Megan Surreal was just uh, named a LA Unified Teacher of the Year. So shout out to the homie Megan. Very well-deserved Teacher of the Year. And Jeff, you know, I'm not big on like rankings and all that stuff. And I'm sure um, those of you out there across the nation who have been honored with something like a teacher of the year would agree that, you know, there's a lot of quality dope folks out there and, you know, you're happy to do what you can and support your students and serve the pr- profession and all that. But, uh, surreal definitely is up there, definitely is up there in my rankings of my favorite, uh, elementary teachers for sure. I think she's, uh, top three and she's not number two or number three. So shout out to Megan Sorrell out there. And speaking of rankings, Jeff, uh, a few weeks ago, you shouted out Rolling Stone for the good work that they're doing of laying out how the Roe v. Wade uh, pending decision uh, will be used by Texas to, uh, what was that discussion about? Used by Texas to sort of uh, draw back a whole lot of gains made in public education. And I know that you know, I'm not big into rankings, but evidently you are. And Rolling Stone put out some rankings that you thought we should address here before before we get going. And I'm gonna just, um, I guess, I guess, ask you: Are you uh, retracting your love and support for Rolling Stone and the important work that they are doing and showing how the Roe v. Wade decision is going to open the floodgates for really tearing apart uh, our public schools? You know, I had forgotten all about uh, that yeah. <laughs> that comment from a few weeks ago. And I, I will stand by. Rolling Stone has done some interesting work in fields outside of just music and popular culture, which, you know, of course, they sort of originally were well known for. And now we have reached a point where, well, where I'm like, maybe they should just stop talking about music altogether. OK, um, I don't know what they do with rock and country and, you know, classical and other, other genres of music. Uh-huh. Maybe they're doing all right over there. But um, Twitter and the, you know, the online world has been abuzz this week because on June 7th, Rolling Stone lost their ridiculous minds when they released their list of the 200 greatest hip hop albums of all time. And Manuel, it's just comically stupid. Like I, I have to, I just, I have to say, okay. So here's, here's some things. I, of course, in this equation, Manuel, my bias as a grumpy old man of hip hop is very real. And I, I admit it, and also I stand by it, 
okay? I'm not running from it. Because the idea that Futures, uh, DS2, is the 20th greatest hip-hop album of all time is utterly ridiculous, uh, okay? The idea that there are two Kanye albums in the top 10, none of which is College Dropout, is ridiculous. The idea that Ghostface, Supreme Clientele, is the 14th best hip-hop album of all time, come on, man. I appreciate Ghostface, that's ridiculous. That, that that album is better than Enter the 36 Chambers, ridiculous. The idea, the blasphemous idea, okay, that uh, Stankonia, which is objectively speaking, the worst Outkast album that there is. Now, when you're talking about Outkast albums, man, well, they're all, they're all either classic or pretty damn good, so, you know, there's that. But it's clearly the least good of the of the albums that they made as a group, by by a lot, is the second best hip hop album of all time. I mean, come on, man, this this is laughable. Cardi B, Cardi B, ahead of Illmatic, ahead of Reasonable Doubt, ahead of uh, Midnight Marauders, ahead of every good album you ever heard in your life. <laughs> like, come on, man. I love Cardi. Shout out to the Bronx. But this is just obscene, man. It's it's ridiculous. The only thing about this list I could kind of respect is that the number one album of all time was Notorious uh, B.I.G.'s Ready to Die. Personally, I wouldn't have picked it as number one, but I can certainly appreciate a good argument that that is, for many reasons, uh, could be considered the number one hip-hop album of all time. I'm not mad at that choice, but there's there's so much other ridiculous stuff in here, man. The Chronic yeah. 2001 is ahead of The Chronic. Come on, man. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. So, Rolling Stone. What are you doing, man? I know this is an education show. I'm yelling. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the sound is peaking over here. It's going to sound terrible when we're done, man. Well, but we cannot stand for this. <laughs> Well, I'm picking up that you're not a fan of this of this list here, and I just want to point out a few things. First of all, the best misinformation is uh, information that is mixed with a little bit of truth in it, and that seems to be what they did here. They sprinkled in some good ones up there, uh, like you just pointed out, Notorious B.I.G., uh, amongst a lot of just ridiculousness, and really good misinformation, that's what it does. There's just a little bit of truth sprinkled throughout, or close to truth sprinkled throughout, enough to help you, or, or to lead you into thinking, well, if, you know, the whole thing must be must be about right. Um, I also want to point out that this this list has like, I didn't even count it up. It looks like maybe 15 co-authors and they just lit, listed them in alphabetical order, which is to say um, they just threw hella names on this joint. And I think that's an aspect of, of uh, shifting or reducing the individual culpability here because I don't think any one person would dare stake their, uh, in this case, I guess, music journalism career on this list because this list is so, so bad. So they just got all the names up there. So you don't even know who to blame. You can't even like name one person to blame or, or to, to light up online because it's just so many co-authors to this. And I also want to say and point out that I refuse clickbait or I tried to refuse clickbait. So this came across my timeline several times. I was like, nope, not going to click on it. Not going to click on it. Nope. Not, nope. <laughs> nope. Because I knew, I knew they only uh. wanted to rile people up in order to get engagement. And then here we go. My co-host, the super duper dope principal leader man sends me this. And he's like, yo, we got to talk about this on the show, man. This is just ridiculous. And boom, now it's, now I clicked on it. Now it's in my algorithms and all that stuff. And Rolling Stone got their little <laughs> point zero 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 one percent uh, or yeah, cent yeah, from yeah, me yeah. clicking on it. So thank you, Jeff, for contributing to this age of misinformation and clickbait. And that's all I got to yeah. say about that. 
That's that's about right. You had the right approach, man. I knew I shouldn't have <laughs> clicked on it, but I actually was listening to uh, sports talk radio the other night, and uh, this radio host, well, he was tripping out about it. He was like, what kind of insanity is going on here? And I was like, okay, if, if this made like sports talk radio, I got to... <laughs> I gotta check it out for myself, and then I just lost it completely. I have some some uh, some good friends uh, back home who host a podcast. Actually, one of whom's a former guest on the show, uh, Alex Leonard, um, who works at the Community Connected Academy at Patrick Henry High School in North Minneapolis. Shout out to them. Um, but uh, he hosts a podcast, and I literally texted him and another friend of mine, uh, Anthony, who's who. Um, also uh, is a co-host of the show. And I was like, you guys got to do a special episode, man. Do it for the culture. Like, this cannot be allowed to stand. And I think they were more in your camp. Uh, cooler cooler heads prevailing. Like, who cares what Rolling Stone has to nice. say about hip-hop, man? These folks don't even, you know, this, this, yes, this is exactly. like, this is irrelevant. And I'm like, I know it's irrelevant, but this is madness. <laughs> ah, thank you, you for indulging me. <laughs> for sure. I couldn't help it. Yes. <laughs> for sure. Man, well, folks, it is summer break around these parts, so we hope all of you who might also be on summer break uh, have a fantastic, fantastic week ahead, and if you are still with us, still listening, we would love to, uh, again, remind you that all of our content, all of our previous episodes, and this is a great time to go back to some of those previous super dope guests that we had on, all that can be found at AOTA Show. Dot com, as well as links to get your own Teach the Truth shirt. This weekend happens to be, I believe, uh, Zen Education Project organized another weekend of uh, demonstrating for truthful teaching of history and truthful approaches to our um, dealing with the past and our present and our future. And if you are interested in continuing to advocate against these anti-truth, anti-human bills that have crossed the nation, if you are interested in continuing to advocate against the uh, so-called CRT bans and all that stuff, and you want to show your support, uh, aotashow.com slash support, and you'll find your t-shirt there. I wore one of mine um, about a week ago to a sandwich shop, shout out Perry's Joint in Pasadena, and uh, one of the one of the folks there who was dying was like, yo, I love your shirt. So yeah, man, the, the message resonates, teach the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And with that being said, I believe we are we are done for this week's passing period. Again, we'll be we'll be back at you next week, probably with another passing period until we have had some time to sort of sort out our calendar and get some more super dope guests on the show. So until then, stay dope, my friends. We love y'all. Now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class. <laughs>